Jill is off today. She's back with you tomorrow. Sterling Fox in for your Jill today uh, with a guest on the line from back east uh, who's responding to a, this headline. Legal tax dodges cost Canada $25 billion. PBO, Parliamentary Budget Office study says. Our guest is the executive director of Canadians for Tax Fairness, who I suspect is not at all impressed by the fact that $25 billion goes, well, basically skipping out of the country every year. Uh, Toby Sanger is on the line. Mr. Sanger, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us, Toby. Canadians for Tax Fairness. Tell us a little bit about your group before we zoom in on this uh, tax evasion stuff. Yeah, so we're a small we're a small group based in Ottawa, and we uh, and and we focus on uh, on trying to get more fair and uh, progressive tax policies in Canada, making sure that the wealthy and uh, corporations uh, pay their fair share, largely. Now, so what we're talking about is a study here from the Parliamentary Budget Office. Uh, and actually, we're talking about a couple of studies. One was done by the Parliamentary Budget Office, and this talks about uh, legal tax havens. This is all legal, according to the PBO. $25 billion is removed from domestic tax coffers every year through legal tax maneuvers by very large Canadian companies. That's one study. A- any comments on that one, Toby? Well, you're absolutely right. This week, uh, there were two studies to, uh, from two very credible organizations, the Parliamentary Budget Office, which is an independent group of experts, uh, um, independent of any party uh, the, um, um, based in Ottawa, and uh, Canada Revenue Agency mm-hmm. came out with a report earlier this week. Um, the Canada Revenue Agency report was looking at what they what they call a tax gap, and they and they've done a series of these. And this latest one was about uh, how much uh, is basically avoided in different ways by corporations. How much um, the, the difference between what they should be paying and what uh, and, and 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 what they have been paid uh, and what they have paid. And so part of that is avoidance and evasion. Part of it is, you know, a company might go bust or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, of uh, course. But th- then, this, then this latest study uh, was from the Parliamentary Budget Office, and it was, as you were saying, looking at, uh, at how much uh, estimates of how much uh, tax is avoided through um, profit-shifting, use of tax havens, and, uh, and, and other means uh, internationally. And they both came up with... You know, very, uh, what I think, uh, pretty shockingly high figures. Well, no question um, about it, because I talked about $25 billion. That's the PBO study on legal tax maneuvers yeah. that co- corporations yeah. use to avoid. The other study by the uh, Canada Revenue Agency is talking about those, uh, well, uh, illegal tax avoidances, but they both came up with the same number, which put together is over $50 billion a year that is avoided in tax this and you point out because you did the math and it doesn't take a whole it doesn't take a rocket scientist to put together and do these do the math and i'm quoting you here canadians are being robbed of investments to health care child care education and green infrastructure all of which the government could afford if it were to get serious about cracking down on tax avoidance this is a quote attributed to you correct mm-hmm. uh, yep yep that's right uh, uh, there's there's many billions lost, and I think one of the big points from this is that, uh, and this came out in the CRA study, is that the uh, is that it's a really it is the larger corporations in particular 
that are that are really um, that are really pushing the envelope and and avoiding taxes much more so than small and medium sized enterprises. And while ordinary Canadians, by and large, are responsibly paying their taxes, it's these larger corporations that are uh, that are that are avoiding taxes uh, often through legal means. I mean, some of it's legal. It's uh, and some of it's a gray area. Now, now I have to give credit to the CRA both for doing this type of analysis to try and figure out how much was being lost. Mm-hmm. There had been severe cuts to the CRA under the previous government, and particularly to this area in which uh, large corporations and offshore uh, their their ability to enforce that. And this government has has put more money into it, but we need much stronger penalties on this. We need them. Um, Stronger enforcement, but we also need a change in the in 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 the laws. And there are um, some uh, interesting and pretty intense uh, discussions going on uh, in terms of reforming international corporate uh, tax rules. Of course, now you realize, uh, Toby, as as these discussions take place about reforming international tax avoidance rules, uh, the corporations, those responsible for the avoidance, aren't exactly sitting on their hands, are they? They're going to be uh, fighting tooth and nail not to have any changes because, of course, it all suits them perfectly right now. Where, where in the world, Toby, right now, are laws that, are, that have teeth that deal with tax avoidance and tax evasion? Are there any countries that are way ahead of us on this file? Those are both excellent points, and a number of major uh, countries around the world, including the U.S. to a certain extent, uh, the U.K., France, uh, Australia, have all brought in some legislation. India is uh, is just considering some pretty strong legislation in terms of changing the way that they, in, in terms of making these large corporations with offshore profits, they park their profits in some other country. Sure. Getting them, getting them to pay their taxes, and so, so, so they're all introducing some legislation. Uh, Canada has been a bit sitting on its hands on it. Well, they haven't been sitting on their hands, they, but they, but they haven't been, uh, they, they haven't uh, in, brought forward any sort of legislation or, and or publicly supported uh, uh, some of the proposals that are out there. So we really think the Canadian government should be uh, taking stronger steps in different ways in terms of uh, increasing penalties, increasing enforcement, but then also either bringing in legislation ourselves and or supporting some of the good proposals that, that uh, some other countries have, uh, have uh, proposed. Out well, there. It is, it's, and in fact, that, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, okay. I was only going to say that we have a a government right now in charge that are are doing some things, as you point out, but they are also a government that's very, very fond of tax and spend as a way of doing business. And one thinks uh, of the taxes that have been increased and fees and levies, call them what you will, on individuals over the last three years by the current government that could have easily not taken place had the government instead directed the same kind of energy at collecting taxes already owed and on the books. Yeah, yeah, and I do have to give them credit. I mean, you know, I'm often criticizing the government. I do have to give them credit for increasing the enforcement in this area. And they have, you know, they have uh, shown that it's a problem with mm-hmm. reports like this. Sure. So, but, uh, but there's a lot more that needs to be done in terms of that. And there's a lot more that needs to be done in terms of, uh, in terms of changing legislation. And changing the rules, which, uh, as you pointed out, 
allows some of the largest companies in the world, corporations in the world, to often perfectly legal legally avoid taxes. Um, uh, the CRA has taken companies like Cameco to court over two billion dollars. It's a Canadian company out mm-hmm. just two bid two billion dollars for this company to court. They lost the latest round. They're appealing it, but uh, this is because uh, we need to change the laws so that uh, so that larger corporations and the wealthy pay their fair share of taxes, just like uh, um, the vast majority of ordinary Canadians are doing. Well, timing is everything, of course, Toby. I'm almost out of mine. Yeah. I appreciate yours this morning, but we're coming up to an election this October in Canada. Could this multi, multi-billion dollar tax avoidance and evasion issue, uh, which could put $50 billion back into the Treasury. Do you think this could rise to the status of an election issue this year? Well, we're certainly hoping it's going to be an election issue. I mean, I do have to caution that it might not be, that that, that $50 billion might be a high estimate of it, but it's definitely in if you add it all up, it's uh, it's uh, uh, because there's a little bit of an overlap between those, but uh, uh, between the different studies, and because we don't actually know all of this, we don't have enough transparency on this. So, fifty billion would be a very high estimate on this. Uh, would be a high estimate on this, but uh, certainly we hope it's going to be an issue, and uh, and we'll push and we're proposing a number of changes that we hope that uh, that that uh, that the federal parties. Uh, will include in their platform. So uh, how about a website address for us, Toby, before we let you go for the uh, director of uh, Canadians for Tax Fairness. Where do we find you on on the line? It's at, it's at taxfairness.ca. Okay. Toby Sanger, thanks for this. Appreciate it. It's a, an issue that is easily slept, swept under the rug by people who are good under the rug sweepers, and there are lots of them, but this is something Canadians really need to know about, and we appreciate your time uh, in sort of uh, shedding some light on this matter. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's about time we introduce our next guest, and I'm going to let our own uh, our guest's own uh, Twitter site uh, describe him to you, and then we'll say good morning. He's a communications consultant, a uh, power play panelist on CTV. He's a columnist with The Hill Times and one of Canada's top five political minds, slightly cuter than Justin Trudeau. This is Jerry Nichols. He's <laughs> back with us from Oakville, Ontario. Jerry, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you doing? Well, I'm fine, thank you. Uh, lots to talk about this morning. I love your description of yourself on, on your Twitter page. Slightly, All accurate, too. Sl- slightly cuter than Justin Trudeau. Deadly <laughs> accurate. Impressive stuff. Uh, lots to talk about here this morning. Uh, I want to start with, and I'm going to take us back a week or so, uh, to, the, the, to the Raptors games. Uh, we all watch that. The, the, the numbers, the ratings. You're in the TV business. You're a panelist on Power Play. You know about ratings. The ratings for the Raptors games, those final few games against uh, Steph Curry and, and uh, the Warriors, the numbers were just staggering to huge audiences. So taking advantage of that were some groups, third parties, who decided to buy a very expensive uh, premium uh, attack ad airtime during the Raptors game. What did you make of the strategy and the ads themselves? Well, I think it's a waste of money um, to run ads. I mean, I, I know that they're a, a massive audience, as you said. There's millions of people watching that game. Probably Absolutely. A lot of money. Oh, sure. Put that on there. Um, the problem is the election's four months away, and people are going to forget about those ads four days after they watch them. You know, that's the problem. You know, there's an old adage in politics, when you're up, stay up. 
In other words, if you're going to start advertising on TV, you got to stay up uh, until Election Day, because otherwise people are going to forget your message. Sure. And so if, if the goal of these groups was to sway public opinion and to get people to vote differently during the election, they're not going to do it. Um, if their goal was simply to sort of say, look at us, we're, we're, we're out there, we have this great ad, and, and this might help them with fundraising, then maybe they accomplish that. Um, but I think, you know, f- for these organizations, um, it, it doesn't really help them their cause to, to, to run ads in terms of swaying public opinion, because no one's going to remember those ads. I'm sure everyone's forgotten about, about them by now. Okay, so uh, a lot of money chasing after very little, ultimately, because it's just too far away from Election Day. Yeah, and I think you know, part of the problem these organizations face um, is that we have what, what, you know, what I call an election gag law in place. Uh, that means as soon as the election is called, it's basically illegal for them to run you know, television advertising. Right. So they had to do the men, I suppose. Um, that was their best opportunity. Um, but it's not really going to change the game. Again, if this was just something to help them get fundraising, to help them raise status within their organizations, and the, they could say to their donors, hey, look at us, you know, we're out there, then that might have accomplished something, but that's about it. Okay, well, let's, let's uh, focus a little bit on the possible outcome of this fall's election in October. It is far enough away that maybe attack ads don't work, especially with the long, hot summer ahead of us all, Jerry. But uh, ultimately, already a lot of speculation taking place across the country as to the possibility of a liberal minority government propped up by a, with the BC model creeping back in, propped a liberal minority propped up by Elizabeth May and the Greens. That's certainly a possibility. Um, you know, the polls show that the Conservatives are gaining, that Trudeau seems to be stagnating, which has kind of changed the picture from what it was about six or seven months ago. I mean, if I was on your show seven months ago, you'd ask me, I would have said the Liberals are going to win. Mm-hmm. They'll prob- probably win a majority. They, they seem to be heading that way. Uh, then a little thing called the SNC scandal came along, and it's kind of blown up everything. And the only thing I can really say with any confidence is um, I have no confidence and what's going to happen. Uh, everything seems to be up in the, op- uh, up in the air right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's an old saying, campaigns matter. And I think they're really going to matter in this election uh, because I think it's anybody's game right now. We don't really know what's going to happen. I think uh, Sheer has an opportunity to make some gains. I think she- uh, Trudeau still has an opportunity to kind of turn things around. Um, Singh, is Singh finally going to make uh, the NDP relevant? We don't know. Uh, what role is the Green Party going to play? They've suddenly appeared out of nowhere and seem to be uh, something of a force in, in, in Canadian politics right now. I think, so, Jerry, yeah, if there's, I, there's, there's a lot of mystery. Yeah, if I can interrupt just on the on the matter of the Greens, I think they're picking up a lot of momentum because a lot of the young voters, many of whom for the first time came out in the last election in large numbers and voted for Justin and his gang and gave him the majority that so few of us were, were predicting. And a lot of those people have been, in the very short two or three years, become rather disillusioned with the current government, and particularly, of course, in the wake of this week's decision to go forward with the pipeline. For a lot of those younger voters, that's 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 the, the line that shouldn't have been crossed, and they're going to transfer their vote immediately and quite directly, not to the NDP, directly to the Greens. I think that's an accurate assessment, Sterling. Certainly the polls show that Trudeau has been bleeding progressive voters. And, and, uh, and some of them are going to the NDP, uh, lots are going to the Green. And I think, that's kind of a, I think that's kind of a populist impulse almost. I think people who are fed up with the uh, mainstream established 
parties are looking for something different. Mm-hmm. They're looking for almost an anti-politician. And I think Elizabeth May, with all her quirks, and the Green Party, because it's like you know pretty far away from as traditional parties you can get, I think a lot of people are finding that, that to be an attractive place to park their voters, or at least to tell pollsters that they're going to vote for them. Right. So I, th- I think the challenge for Trudeau, and, and, and also for Singh for that matter, how can we win those people back? And I think that's what they're going to be thinking about over the summer. Mm-hmm. You mentioned populism. I want to get into that a little bit with you. Need to take a quick break. It's always a pleasure to have you. And when you were talking about seven months ago and predicting that Trudeau would have won, you were on with us seven months ago. And I do believe you actually did predict at that point. Well, there you go. It was his election to lose. <laughs> that's very true. Jerry, you mentioned a few moments ago, you were talking about how uh, uh, in many cases, you were, we were talking in the, in the context of younger voters looking around for alternatives to the Trudeau they voted for a few years ago and don't want to vote for this time, and you're saying a lot of them are looking for non-politician types. Well, you know, we've had a few of those in Canada. One of the best known that we've ever had in this country was Rob Ford, the late mayor of the city of Toronto. And I understand this week and just in the last 24 or 48 hours, his widow, Renata, has agreed to become a candidate in Max Bernier's People's Party and run for federal election for, I would assume, York West or one of those ridings. Is that the case? Yeah, that's what I've heard. I think, I think it's going to be in Etobicoke that she's okay. going to be running. Okay, right, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think this is, this is good news for Maxime Bernier and his People's Party. I mean, if only because we're actually talking about Maxime Bernier's I suppose, yeah. Um, he hasn't been getting a lot of press lately, and the press he has been getting has been negative. So this is kind of a good news story for him, and I think he needed it. Uh, I don't know anything about Renalta Ford, other than the fact that she was married to a beloved late politician. Sure. And her last name is Ford. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's more than a lot of politicians have, is this good name recognition and this kind of magic connection. So I wouldn't be surprised if she you know, got her share fair of votes in, in, in the federal election. I don't think she'll win. But what she could do is take away votes from other mainstream parties, and not just the Conservative Party. It's possible she could also take away votes from the NDP because Rob Ford got a lot of sort of NDP voters to support him when he when he was mayor. That's true. So, so I think all in all, it's, it's, it's a good story for Maxime Bernier at a time when he kind of needed a good news story. Well, you're right, because we're not talking about him since he formed this party and then sort of uh, disappeared off the radar. And then you're right, the only little blip that comes up every now and then is some really far out uh, alt-right type gets in some way associated with the party. Max doesn't denounce him or or give him the old heave-ho fast enough. And it's, it, the press is it's kind of building up, and it's not, it's not very attractive, these days for Mr. Bernier, is it? I mean, I like Maxime Bernier. I think he's a good guy. Um, I think he's got some interesting ideas, but he's not necessarily the greatest politician in the world. He sometimes lacks political judgment. Um, That's not to say he can't still be a force um, in the upcoming election. Um, You know, we don't know again. We don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot of variables out there. Um, But he's going to be out there, you know, pushing his agenda and pushing his uh, sort of quasi-libertarian, quasi-populist message, and we don't know. He could, he could you know, suck away votes for, from Andrew Sheeran, and this is going to be a tight race, and all indications are it is going to be a tight race. That could make for some interesting results on, on Election Day. Yeah. Jerry, you've been tweeting and retweeting a lot about populism lately, as a lo- have a lot of political commentators. First and foremost, what do you mean by populism? Well, populism to me usually means, um, traditionally, is when there's a feeling of resentment in, in the public. People feel that the institutions, the politicians, the political parties 
don't care about them or they care about other interests or they're promoting other interests and they're just forgetting about regular people. And whenever that sort of reaches a critical mass, that sort of sense, that sort of resentment, that sort of anger, there's always an opportunity for a sort of a political entrepreneur to come in there and take advantage of those feelings. And, you know, this is like Donald Trump in the United States, of course, is the most obvious example, or Rob Ford uh, when he was running for, for mayor of Toronto. Mm-hmm. I was just saying, you know what? They're not listening to you. I will listen to you. I will fight for you. And when there's that sort of populisty kind of climate out there, that can be a really powerful message. Now, do you see anyone in Canada, uh, and we're not looking for, and, and we're going to talk to uh, one of the pollsters later in, in the program about uh, the, the new numbers that show Canadians en masse are really quite repulsed by Mr. Trump. And I don't think Canadians are looking for a, an, an equivalent uh, in the election. And yet there is, a, a, there is an identifiable yearning for populist uh, people in this country as well. Who's, who's going to fill that void in Canada, Jim? Well, first of all, your point about Trump is, yeah, I agree that a lot of Canadians don't like Trump, but you have to keep in mind that most of his messages are not geared towards Canadian audience. Of course, of course. Canadians are going to care about a a wall between Mexico and the United States. But there are universal aspects to what you might call Trumpism that could be popular here in Canada as well. I mean, if if you were to sort of change the lingo a little bit and say, put Canada first, I think a lot of Canadians would think that's a good idea. Or buy Canadian. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would think that's a good idea. Secure our borders. A lot of Canadians would think that's a good idea. So I think there's, there's certain populist messages that could resonate in Canada right now. No political party seems to be taking that up right now. Um, you know, Andrew Scheer could sort of be playing the populist card from the right. He isn't. Uh, Jagmeet Singh could be playing the populist card from the left. And people forget this. There is a left-wing populism as well. Sure. Um, and, and Singh really hasn't done that. I think our, our political parties are a little timid and a little passive, and they're a little afraid to go down that route. Um, so we're not going to see at least a populist sort of revolution here in Canada, at least federally. Maybe we will in the next election, um, but not but not federally, at least not in 2019, I don't think. Okay. Uh, only got a couple of minutes left, and Andrew Scheer uh, made the speech in front of some terribly idyllic country, uh, backcountry scene. Uh, his uh, new conservative climate change policy announcement happened this week, hammered, of course, immediately by the liberals as being incomplete, insufficient, in, 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 etc. Uh, they want this election, this October, to be all about and only about climate change, call it what you will. Uh, And I don't think, first of all, Canadians are going to buy into that. I don't think uh, there's an obvious awareness of it, but I don't think it's the crisis that uh, they would love us to believe it is. Uh, And uh, what did you think of the two things? First of all, Mr. Scheer's speech, the Canadian position on climate change, or the conservative position on climate change, and the likelihood of that dominating this election. Well, the only thing that, uh, like, Scheer is going to accomplish by announcing his climate change plans is he's going to give his opponent something to attack. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, no matter what Scheer said, no matter what he promoted, he was going to be attacked. And he is being attacked for it. You know, they're saying it's, it's, it lacks imagination, there's, there's no details, there's no firm commitments anywhere, which is all true. I mean, I'm not a climate scientist. I don't know if it's, it's a good plan or not a good plan. But the politics of the situation are pretty clear. No matter what Scheer did, he would be attacked in climate change. Yep. And he cannot win an election talking about climate change. Conservatives just don't have credibility when it comes to that issue. Liberals and New Democrats do. So if Scheer wants to win the next election, he's got to talk about what he's good at. 
talking about you know, economics, talking about fiscal issues. So instead of promoting his own climate change plan, what he has to do is attack Trudeau's climate change plan and do it on economic grounds, i.e. it's going to hurt the economy, i.e. it's going to cost jobs, i.e. it's going to mean we're all going to be paying more taxes. I think if Scheer sticks to that message, he'll do okay. Because I think you're right, Sterling. Uh, climate change is an issue that, you know, the parliamentary press gallery cares about. Yeah. But I'm not sure the average Canadian is all that concerned. They may be concerned in an abstract sense, but they don't want to pay higher taxes to fight it. And uh, this is where we saw this in Alberta. We saw this in Ontario. Politicians who campaign against the carbon tax won. So I think Scheer, if he sticks to his message, if he sticks to his economic message, he keeps hammering away at Trudeau's plan, he, he'll do okay. He doesn't have to talk about climate change plan. He shouldn't be talking about his climate change plan because it won't help him. Interesting stuff. Jerry, always a real pleasure, sir, to have you on the program. It's a a treat that I look forward to, uh, and we get to do it uh, every now and then. It's always great fun. Thanks for this. Oh, my pleasure, Sterling. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, We move along now to our next guest, who is Professor Jeffrey Myers, who lectures in law at Thompson Rivers University, joining us on the line from Kamloops this morning to talk about U.S. politics. Jeff, good morning. Oh, well, good morning, Sterling. It's uh, great to have you with us. A couple of things. First of all, I want to talk about the Democrats. That's uh, very much on my mind today as the their first debate comes up in Miami in a few days, and they got a couple of dozen people and a lot to sort out. But first, mm-hmm. and, first and foremost, our good friend Mario Canseco over at yeah. Research Company here mm-hmm. in, in Vancouver has just released a survey in the last couple of days talking about Canadians and our attitudes with respect to President Trump. And 65% of Canadians think having Trump as president has been bad or very bad for Canada. It's not whether, oh, geez, he would, do we like him? Could he ever be prime minister? It wasn't that at all. It was about whether his administrative, uh, his administration has had positive or negative implications for Canada. And two thirds of us uh, say, well, it's been kind of negative so far. I mean, I think what's astounding, actually, is that only two-thirds of us say that. I mean, this uh, I saw the same Conseco poll that uh, you did. It's obviously, it's a credible uh, poll, as far as these things can tell you anything. Um, but the, the idea, I think there's two things to bear in mind. One, uh, you know, this current administration has um, jeopardized the predictability and structure surrounding our trading relationship. Uh, by, you know, putting NAFTA's, you know, on the table for renegotiation mm-hmm. and sort of also having blown open the kind of global uh, system of trade, which Canada had sort of benefited from, uh, uh, at least its elites. And it's, you know, to some extent, the consensus view was that it had benefited. Then number two, um, it uh, took away some of the um, certainty around NATO and around our military and security alliances, mm-hmm. right, that had been providing an umbrella for Canada, a nuclear umbrella and a defense umbrella generally since the end of the Second World War, really. Um, and so by removing the certainty around these two things, the Trump administration put Canada into a very um, uh, problematic, a very vulnerable position uh, in the world. It's also imported, by the way, a kind of um, extreme nationalist politics and legitimize and enliven them in Canada in a way that maybe they weren't before as a result of the kind of global phenomenon of authoritarianism that's associated with the rise of Donald Trump. So Canadians have been very, I think, negatively affected. And the fact that only two-thirds of Canadians would absolutely and immediately say that is is 
is astounding, I think. And those who wouldn't are those who are more sympathetic to what Mr. Trump has done in the United States and would like to see something similar happen here. Interesting. Now, uh, the prime minister was in Washington in the Oval Office a couple of days ago looking for help from uh, Mr. Trump with respect to the upcoming G20 and a meeting that he's been trying to organize with the president of China, who is reluctant uh, on a good day to take that meeting. Uh, He wants Trump to intervene. Uh, And of course, Trump is responsible in some way for the current animosity between Canada and China because of the the incarceration of uh, the Huawei uh, owner's daughter, who of course is a significant figure in her own country. She's under house arrest here in Vancouver. This is being done at the behest of the Trump administration who wants her in jail in the States. China says we're being played. Possibly we are, but nonetheless, we are honoring international treaty obligations. So the prime minister flew to Washington on Thursday looking for a little help. You think he's going to get any? Well, look, he went to had a meeting with Mr. Trump. Uh, he had and he also had a meeting with Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. The meeting with Mr. Trump, there were several sort of significant policy outcomes that came out of it. But one bullet point, really, is this relationship between Canada and China and that Canada's awkward insertion uh, in it between the rising tensions between the United States on one hand and China on the other. Of course, our uh, the arrest was of the uh, finan- the. I think you're right about the relationship, but also the. I think the. Um, the chief financial officer of, of uh, and, Huawei, and she's sure. been, yeah, of Huawei, and she's been granted bail, and she's waiting her um, extradition hearings, right? And we yeah. are acting pursuant to extradition treaties with the United States. Exactly. China takes the position, though, that the attack on Huawei is illegitimate, and that this is kind of an attack on on Huawei rather than a legitimate uh, um, uh, criminal matter, and that that the United Canada should not extradite, right? But Canada, of course, has. And in a retaliatory fashion, two Canadians have sort of been um, arrested in China, right? And so the question is how to exercise maximal diplomatic pressure to have them released. And it was a congenial meeting between Mr. Trump and uh, Mr. Trudeau and really a lot of comparisons in the media between last year around this time when the two, after the G7 meeting in, in Canada, where the two had a huge blow up. Oh, yeah. Um, so, but he and Mr. Trump said, of course, he'll raise this with Mr. G on the sidelines of the upcoming um, G20, I think it is. In, uh, is it the G20 or is it a G8? I don't no, remember. it's, a, no, it's G20 in Japan. Yeah. G20 in Japan. Yeah. Raise that on the side with him, right? So then that's, a, I guess, a small diplomatic victory, but it's a very uncertain situation. And, and then Canada will likely, you know, get uh, played as off uh, as a pawn in great power politics between both, by the way, uh, the United States and uh, China, as well as the United States and Russia, right? Like, so. So the fact that Canada has taken a position to, um, you know, try to defend NATO and to work in sort of countries like Latvia, Estonia, um, and Lithuania, which are at the front lines of sort of any kind of conflict between Russia and the West, and, and generally speaking, like the UK, has sort of taken a hard line against Russia. It becomes easy for Russia or China to pick on Canada and sort of there the United States. Well, what are you going to do for little brother, right? And that puts us in a in a vulnerable position security wise. And like I say. Um, on the economic front, whatever the foibles are of the of, were of NAFTA, I should say, uh, they at least provided some degree of certainty and a baseline from which to work. Um, and in the, in this case, all of those situations, all of the status quo was upset. So Canada has been negatively affected. I think there's no question about it. 
All right, Jeff, let's uh, move uh, forward a few days to the uh, the Democrats. There are so many candidates running to uh, take on Donald Trump uh, that they can't even fit all of them onto one stage for one debate. They're going to have to break it into groups of two twelves. They got two dozen people running for this. It, it's a bit of a gong show right now, uh, but they're getting at it with debates and the elimination process should actually begin after the first debate. How do you think it's all going to boil down to? Uh, is Joe Biden? Biden, the guy? Well, yeah, I see you want to go to the big picture question. I'm still mired in the fact that you got, like, I think it's 23 or 24 uh, candidates oh, I know. in this, including some who were, by the by the way, remember how, how controversial the DNC's decisions as the Democratic National Committee were around the structure of debates and everything like that, as between um, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton yes. in 2016, right? This time they've got 23 or 24 candidates. So they've got all these minimum, you have to poll over mm-hmm. 1% of a certain number of states, you have to raise a certain amount of money exactly. over a certain amount. And some very prominent people, including the governor of Montana, is not on the debate stage. And then other people have been thrust on there, including self-help gurus and tech entrepreneurs, some of whom have developed a cult following. But the top candidates, the top tier, and there's two debates, by the way, right? And yeah. there's, there's, there's no kids table like they did in the Republican. <laughs> <That's> right, <yeah. laughs> no second tier candidate table. But in this case, it, there's, there's good people, or not, I shouldn't say good people, but people who are polling significantly in both. But the top people, the top contenders, leading a very kind of, I think, soft lead is Joe Biden. And then battling now for second place, it was Bernie Sanders clearly in that position. Uh, but now Elizabeth Warren appears to be surging and battling him for sort of that left alternative to the middle of the road, sort of centrist um, Joe Biden. Uh, and then you have uh, very much lurking at the perimeter and very much capable of leapfrogging at any point and could well be the nominee. People like Kamala Harris, the former mm-hmm. uh, attorney general of California, now junior senator from California. And then unlikely as it is, um, uh, Pete Buttigieg, the, the former Rhodes Scholar, um, but uh, still relatively young um, mayor of South uh, Bend, Indiana. Uh, and then you have other, you know, high profile, prominent individuals, you know, um, including senators like Kirsten Gillibrand Cory and Booker, Cory Booker yep. you know, many others um, who are, you know, polling are very low um, and are likely not going to survive sort of very long. But I was a long way off. Right. And I, again, as I've reminded uh, folks before, you know, if you look at where Donald Trump was in the Republican primary at this time in 2015, uh, he was polling at like 1%. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we have to be very careful what conclusions we draw about this. And the other thing I often say when looking at that question, right, is, you know, be wary of the polls that you see that are telling you nationally where somebody is, right? Because that's irrelevant. It's the momentum coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire that's important. Now, California's primary has been moved up, so California will be relevant in the situation where in the past this primary was so late. Uh, that its relevance to the whole situation was, I mean, although it had a lot of delegates, the sort of narrative was already cast. Mm -hmm. This time things are different, and it's interesting to note that Kamala Harris, who I think would be a very strong candidate, she's not um, got a runaway lead in California, which is her own state, right? So um, we'll have to see how this plays out, and we'll see how um, the foot race between Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders works out. Joe Biden is, you know, at most of the pollsters say he's a, he's got a, he's, He's a soft lead in the sense that he's vulnerable in a variety of ways. I think we've seen that. Um, you know, so I think what was your original question was was more was no, more. No, you just answered it. Actually, I was talking. I asked him essentially, was Joe Biden going to be the guy? And I don't think he is either. By the way, I don't but, think I didn't say that he wasn't. But I agree that you've inferred from what I've said. You're right. I kind of don't. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of starting to, to lean in the direction of thinking he, everybody else would have to really screw up for him to be the, the head. And he's doing. He's always done a very good job. 
of, I mean, everybody says it's like, like the foot and mouth disease, right? Mm-hmm. Like of self-sabotaging. I think his bigger problem is that he appears to be out of touch, kind of like um, a grandpa who's like a kind of entertaining and sweet, but sometimes a bit of a faux pas, right? Now, Mr. Trump, he doesn't have to worry about that. I mean, he, because his supporters are all themselves. You know, many of his supporters are older and from a different generation are hearkening back, make America great again to sure. some halcyon past, right? But Biden needs to get people, young people, people of color, you know, traditionally people who are disenfranchised, marginalized, not involved in the system. All of these people beyond just the so-called lunch pail uh, Democrats who maybe voted for, um, for Donald Trump themselves. And, and he's not appealing to them because he appears to be out of touch, an entertaining person at the dinner table, but not necessarily somebody who wants to be president of the United States, which is odd considering he wants to be president of the United States. States. Exactly. (laughs) Jeff, I I have to leave it there. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. Grateful for your time. We'll do this again. Of course, it's it's a long way off and there's lots to talk about between now and then. Oh, absolutely, Sterling. It's always a pleasure to speak to you and your listeners as well. well. Sterling Fox in on this Saturday morning, and a busy Saturday it is around our city, and a lot of the activity in the city is going to happen under the roof of Rogers Arena as the NHL draft continues. Last night, the very splashy first night, the opening round, and today, well, a lot of work gets done. It's pretty relaxed last night compared to the activity level that's going to be happening today. Stephen Hocko is back with us. Stephen is a reporter with The Dub Network which, of course, is all about the dub, the WHL. Stephen has been with us in the past talking about the Vancouver Giants and the uh, the prospects of their making it to the Memorial Cup. Stephen, good morning. It was so close. They made it to Game 7, but just not quite. Yeah, it's, um, it, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but, yeah, they, um, they came one goal short, Game 7 overtime. Uh, unfortunately, couldn't get it done, but... It was quite the season to be able to cover and watch. Oh, I'm sure it was. Now, of course, you have a very interesting perspective on all of this because you track these young players. This is what you do. You and Ben Dooley and your other colleagues at Dub Network uh, pay exclusive attention to the WHL. So at draft time, it's almost like payback time for all the work you've done all season long covering these kids. And you, uh, of course, being the Vancouver Giants reporter, had kept a sharp watch, and you and I have talked on this show in the past about Bowen Byram and, of of course, there he goes up to the Colorado Avalanche, number four overall. Did that surprise you, Stephen? Um, not overly. Um, I kind of expected him to go in the four range. What did surprise me is who went third overall was uh, Kirby Dock from Saskatoon. Uh, everybody was expecting Bo- uh, Bowen Byram to go f- be the first WHL to be drafted, but he ended up going um, one pick behind Dock there, so that was a bit of a surprise, but uh, I'm not surprised that Colorado took him. It, it's kind of the range I, I kind of saw him in. It, it, and it helps Colorado with an already deep blue line prospect pool that they have. And it's interesting because, of course, Vancouver Canucks are talking to Colorado about Tyson Barry, who is one of their defensemen. The Canucks is sadly lacking in the defense part of things. So if, if Colorado picks up Bowen uh, uh, Byram uh, in the draft, suddenly a player like Barry uh, isn't as essential to them as he was before Byram was picked up. Yeah, there's a lot of rumors circulating around yesterday that Barry would maybe be a Canuck by the end of the night. Um, we didn't see that, did it, we? Uh, no, it was a really quiet night. There was only one trade, and it it only involved draft picks. It was um, it was uh, the Arizona trading up a few picks to pick at eleven. But yeah, it was kind of a disappointment in the entertainment aspect. But the draft is so good this year. I don't think many teams wanted to move their picks.
And now let's talk about this. And I'm still, I have to, I have to look down and, and I wrote it in large capital letters so I can pronounce it easily. Well, okay. As easily as it gets to say, Vasily Podkolson. Uh, he's a, a, a young Russian with a KHL contract. He's only what, 17 or 18. And he has two years commitment left to the Russian league is that's my understanding. Am I close, Stephen? Yeah, you're right. He's uh, 17 for another couple days, um, but yeah, he has a he has a two year contract with St. Petersburg in the KHL, which I don't re- I don't mind. It's it's just instead of doing two years in the AHL, it's two years in a high, in an arguably higher level of hockey. So true. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I watched him a lot at the World Juniors. I liked him. He he kind of stood out for Russia, especially as an underage player. Russia doesn't usually give ice time to many underage players, so it says a lot about what kind of player he is. Mm-hmm. Um, He's he's a very skilled winger, but he also isn't afraid to get under people's skin or or um, get a little bit on the nasty side. He he hates to lose, and it shows. It's I like the pick for Vancouver personally. Okay, uh, let's talk about the the number one pick, Jack Hughes. Uh, there was some talk, and you would know more about this than I, that the Canucks were going to try and wheel and deal and and uh, trade whatever was necessary to get at that first pick, so they would have the Hughes brothers, Jack and Quinn, who's already here, uh, reunited uh, in Canucks uniforms. That was there was a lot of wild speculation about that. Did you ever even buy into that, Stephen? No, not really. Um, I would have to take a lot for New Jersey to give up Jack Hughes. You like have that. to he's, think so. Yeah, he's he's kind of a can't miss prospect at this point. So it would the Canucks probably would have to sell the farm just to get him. And in my opinion, it's not really worth selling or selling like that for for one player. But mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't I didn't buy into it too much. I mean, it would have been great to see, but. I don't get my hopes up too much when I hear that kind of stuff. Right. Now, one young man that did impress me at the World Championships just a few weeks ago was the young Finnish star, Capo Kako, who went number two overall. And there was some discussion that he would that would that he would reverse and he'd go first and Hughes second. But he did go in the order that they were expected to go and uh, went to the Rangers. Yeah. I, when, after his World Championships, I was kind of starting to second guess if he was going to go first or second or not. But... The Rangers were in such a good position. They were literally just taking either they were just taking whoever the whoever the New Jersey Devils didn't want. And they, so they were they were big winners regardless. So um, yeah, they they have a great player in New York, and they've had some great drafting lately. They have they've had they've been stocking up on picks. They've been doing the rebuild right. It's kind of something you'd like to see the Canucks do. That a couple of years ago they they told their fans straight up that they were going to there's going to be some t- a little bit of tough times ahead. So. Mm-hmm. Some some growing pains, but it looks to be paying off for them right now. So now, today is is the big day. I mean, yesterday was the splashy uh, showbiz day for the draft, and we all got to see the first round picks, and they got interviewed on TV and all the rest of it. Now today, you were there, so you're going back down this morning, uh, and it's going to be busy. There's there's a lot of work to be done. So what do you expect from the Vancouver Canucks uh, by way of Saturday's results at the end of today, Stephen? Um, well, I'm hoping I'm hoping something happens. It's it's there's always the talk of whether they're going to make a splash or not, but usually it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but from what I've heard, it sounds like it's, they're making a real push on on Barry, as you previously mentioned, mm-hmm. and he would definitely be a good fit for the Canucks. He's, he's also a local kid, and the only thing is he only has one year left on his contract, I believe. So you'd have to you'd have to re-sign him. But I think I'm hoping that 
they can stock up maybe on some defensive prospects. There's around the around their second round pick at 40th. There's there's um, Korzak. He played for Kelowna this season. I've watched him play a few times. I would like I wouldn't mind him getting picked up by the Canucks. But um, besides that, I I I kind of trust Jim Benning. This is his kind of his his niche is drafting. So. I'm excited to see how it goes. So I think a lot of fans, I mean, like you, are expecting to see some, hopefully, some good, decent prospects picked up. But I think even more Vancouver fans were looking for some kind of side deal for Jim Benning to make a trade, this Barry thing or whatever. Do you expect today, over the course of today, the Canucks will do a deal that we'll be talking about at the Suppertime News tonight? I'm not sure if I expect it because there's kind of been a history of all this hype around the deal happening, but never happened. So I'm not getting my hopes up too high, but I definitely would be very excited to see something like that. I also saw maybe, maybe a PK Subban deal could be happening, yep. but it'd be, it'd be awesome to see, but I don't get my hopes up too much of this kind of stuff anymore. <laughs> All right. Well, let's maybe get Ty- Kyle Turris to finish out his career back home here uh, in Vancouver. Of course, he's from New Westminster. Stephen, enjoy your day at the draft. So it's going to be a busy one for you. Thanks for getting up a little earlier to do this with us this morning. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Thank the- you for having me.